The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, Internet. Welcome back to another gorgeous episode of Real Psych. I am Dr. J.D. Barton, and I am a licensed clinical psychologist. And I am Dr. Joanna Witkin, and I am a cognitive neuroscientist. Real Psych is a new podcast where we share our gorgeously thoughtful opinions on the psychological phenomena playing out in all of your favorite movies. Hey, J.D., will there be learning? Mm-hmm. Will there be science? Yes. Will there be delightfully informal, explorational, informational conceptualizations from two best friends who would be talking about this anyways? If you say so. <laughs> I almost did not get through that. <laughs> Listen, you are thriving. Doing the whole thing. Doing the whole thing, doing the most, doing the best. It's all yeah. you can do. It's all you can do. Yep. How you feeling? I'm okay. It's. It's midweek that we're recording this. It is midweek. It's, uh, I hate when people say hump day. Same. I hate it so much. But there's no other way to describe it, honestly. We could coin something. Like, what if we called it, like, oof day? Because <laughs> that's a good one. Like, yeah. almost happy day. Yeah, almost oof. Oof day. Yeah. Oof day. It's a very Midwestern exclamation when something, it's very Wisconsin, really, when something, you hear some bad news, oof da. <laughs> oof da? Oof da. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it lives in the same culture as whelp. Whelp. How or, do you say that? Or, op, op, <laughs> didn't mean to, I'm, op, I'm just going to scoop by you. Op. Love yeah. it. My brother thank lives for, in, oh, yeah? <laughs> no, thank you for teaching me these Midwestern. Yeah, my brother lives in Milwaukee, and my favorite thing is when you go and people say goodbye at the grocery store, and they say, have a good day now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm from Michigan, so we have, like, a hard, we have the A's, so we'll hear, yeah. like, that's fantastic. I can tell, like, the way someone pronounces my name. Oh, Joanna. Yeah. Joanna. Joanna. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a whole thing. I was, I was talking with a friend who's from, she's from London. I was talking to a friend from London, uh, shout out Nicola, if you're listening, last night, and uh, I was doing an impression of how she says the word 
community. And she was like, community. And I was like, no, you don't say it like that. I was like, but the thing is, I have to say it differently because I say community. 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 Yeah, in the whole community. Isn't she- accents hilarious? Isn't they hilarious? <laughs> <laughs> All right, are there accents in this movie? Let's find out. Let's find out. Okay, so I chose this week. Yeah, you did. I wanted to continue. I feel like I'm continuing to broaden our scope. Yeah. Genres. Yeah. So that's a little hint. Um, It is a movie from 1984. Okay. And the tagline is, No spook, specter, or haunt will ever be safe again. Ghostbusters! Yeah! Yeah! <laughs> oh, fun. Yeah. The other tagline that I liked was, catching the undead is their life. It's not a pretty job, especially the way they do it, but somebody <laughs> has to. Oh, God. <laughs> so, fun fact, I think I must have seen this as a child, but didn't remember it. And then I watched it again when I, years ago, when I was acting, uh, I, uh, my, my little theater troupe, 30 Minute Musicals, did Ghostbusters the musical several times. Oh, that's awesome. A 30-minute musical version of Ghostbusters. And we did it, like, every Halloween for, like, probably four or five years. And I, in the musical, played Gozer the Gozerian, <laughs> uh, who's basically David Bowie. Yeah. Um, but it was a pretty, pretty fun thing. And I just got to, like, wear a weird costume and crazy makeup. Uh, and maybe I'll post some to the to the... Uh, Instagram of me as goes with a Gozerian. The costume evolved in several ways. I learned how to cut a cheekbone and I learned how to wear color contacts. That is amazing. That okay, is so amazing. You, so you're familiar. Oh, I'm familiar. Uh, <laughs> I know the film quite well. I'm, I do not know. I, the thing I love about this pick is I really don't know where I'm going to go research-wise. Like, there's nothing yeah. that, like, immediately... So it'll be an exciting thing to sort of see... Uh, yeah, I wanted to choose something sci-fi. I mean, it's the same kind of idea with sci-fi and horror or, you know, scary movies. It's like there are so many within those genres that are so on the nose psychologically. Right, right. That I wanted to pick something that wasn't as obvious, um, but that still would be fun to do. So, yeah, I, yeah, I don't know where we're going to go with this, but... But I'm excited. I mean, yeah. everybody listening is about to find out. Good yeah. news. You won't have to wait. <laughs> very long but no I, I mean I do have a lot of ideas already but I'm like yeah Ooh, where am I gonna start yeah where am I gonna go um I never look up where this is available because <laughs> I'm not great so I don't know where this is streaming all right well we'll find it we'll and find listen it. we both have full-time jobs and we can probably afford to stream it somewhere uh and for those that can't that are listening we're gonna give you a hell of a recap you should do a 30 minute musical in five minutes a five minute musical a five minute musical um there are some real cute real cute songs like uh don't cross the streams it would be bad and there's another one um there's a the two uh, annie potts and sigourney weaver have this amazing duet that's like how can you love a man when he's always chasing ghosts how can you love a man when you're not what he loves the most how can you love a man yeah great it's a great and then my song was of course the like go go goes or go goes or the gozerian Mm -mm, the gozerian oh my god 
We had a I really fun that. time. Shout yes. out to, to Brooke Sagan and who wrote this musical. And I think probably Dan Wessels uh, helped quite a bit as well. But Brooke Sagan, uh, Little Brookie Sequins is the is the mastermind behind a lot of this. And produced it. by friend of the pod, Tom DeTrinis, who you know as well. Yes, I do. Yeah. We took yeah. a little cross-country road trip. Just a little bit. Just a yeah. little bit. Just from Miami to Los Angeles with yep. two greyhounds. Anyways, <laughs> the audience is bored. They're dying to hear us. We're being played out. And we will be back with some very amazing thoughts, brilliant thoughts as always. Yeah, we'll see you after these messages. Bye. Bye. We watched this dang movie. We sure did. And, I, you know, I really am starting to think that the we're going to need to change our intro again to be like, hey, listen to these two doctors. Just talk about all the misogyny in every movie that you thought you loved and tell you you're wrong for liking things. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly, yeah, bringing up stuff. Even in movies we like. Yeah. I love this movie. Yeah, I love this movie too. And I... I actually have more memory of Ghostbusters 2 than of this one. So that was like all in a mix in my head. Um, so there's stuff in here that I had no recollection of seeing besides the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man. Right. Because um, that's like burned into a child's memory. Burned. That's but... what happens to him in the end. <laughs> yeah. But the theme song has been stuck in my head for a week. Do you know so the story about fun. the theme song that came out a few no. years ago? So the theme song was written by like a, a black songwriter and mm-hmm. they did like a one-time buyout for him. So the guy got paid like $1,500 or something like insanely low. Maybe, no. maybe he got like 10 grand, but like that song Not became enough. Yeah. franchise, became cartoon shows, became like, it's sold. Everywhere. like that song was sold. Like that song, I think even like straight up charted, but like that song is oh at least gosh. has record sales every Halloween. Yeah. Yeah. Real bum dumber. God. Yeah. It's not great. This Anyways. this film <laughs> to to go by our our constant uh like our own what is our we've got to figure out our own like Barton Witkin test which is like does it suck after the fact? Like is it that's that's Yeah, does it hold up in today's uh, socio political climate? Yeah. yeah, the Bartkin the Bartkin. The Bartkin. Yeah, the Bartkin test is... The Ellen Bartkin. The Ellen Bartkin, yeah. The Bartkin <laughs> test is when we look back on this movie that we previously loved, do we notice that it's horrible in a lot of ways? Or how how do subliminal messaging in these movies affect how we've grown yeah. up and our, our issues yeah. in adulthood? Um, yeah, should we synopsize this and then, and yeah. then jump in? Yes. So let's, let's what happened, Joanna? So we open on some professors at Columbia University. I don't know that they say Uh, Columbia, but you know it's like Inwood, and they're like, yeah, the university. Yeah. If you're like, if you're familiar with New York, like you know. (laughs) Ew. (laughs) Ew. Anyways, um, so they are parapsychologists. Yeah. Um, and they study paranormal activity. Um, they are like unceremoniously kicked out yeah. 
Um, and so then they're all kind of down on their luck trying to figure out what to do. They're kicked out because um, they, uh, they're doing bad research, but also they're doing ESP research, but they also, they get kicked out because of the library thing, right? What happened in the library? The, the librarian, the opening scene with the like little librarian who is also oh, the old lady oh, oh, from oh, 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 Ace Ventura, yes. pet detective, where she's yeah. like, laces out. It's that same lady. <laughs> Okay, totally forgot about that. Yeah, they get kicked off because um, they yeah, like, like blow destroying up a property. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which uh, is a theme I get. They like blowing up stuff. Um, yeah, they really ruin. There's a lot they, of destruction. They break so many things. Yeah, I don't remember how much of the, the comedy things. in this movie was the like, oh no, oh gosh, oh you're really putting your foot in it, aren't you? Oh goodness, oh golly, <laughs> okay, yeah. And they really like don't hold they back. They really like, don't. Like I'm thinking of the the hotel with the. The I guess manager or whatever he's like freaking out because yes. he knows that everything's being destroyed yes. and they're in there just flipping tables flipping, and flipping tables like they're the host yeah. at Balthazar for brunch like f- just flipping right. those tables. <laughs> so they in their research they have already encountered paranormal activity. They have, right? they, have a, in, they have been researching it to the extent where they believe their research has established that it is in fact real, but I don't know that they have close encounters of the third kind okay yeah yeah yeah. um okay so then they are like deciding to become these kinds of detective consultant kind of people private they they mortgage this house at a 19 percent interest rate oh my god it's so (laughs) terrible uh they buy this firehouse uh Mm -hmm. they move in they hire annie potts Love her. Oh, God. She's Set so up a great. commercial. We're prepared to believe you. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are ready to believe you. And then Sigourney Weaver comes into the picture. And then Sigourney Weaver. She is a cellist. Her next door neighbor mm-hmm. is Rick Moranis. Amazing. She lives in an insane apartment. It's a penthouse. Well, yeah. I said she's a cellist. So obviously <laughs> she'd have a penthouse on Central Park West. Right. Which, honestly, maybe probably true in the sense that in order to become skilled enough to become a professional cellist, she probably That's just true. comes from generational Indirect. wealth. Totally. Yeah. It, uh, they map onto a latent variable of wealth. Yes, exactly. We're going to talk about some of those <laughs> in a minute. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so she has an experience where she opens her refrigerator and sees this like insane hell temple. I was not even sure what I was seeing with my eyes. I don't think she was either. It looked, yeah. Eggs fry on her countertops. She then comes to the Ghostbusters, who immediately should, and I think do, make her feel very uncomfortable with how aroused Bill Murray is when he sees her. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's not even listening to what she's saying. No. No, he refuses to do so. Uh, And so, uh, Bill Murray decides to, like, go back to her apartment gaslights her and is like you're crazy there's nothing real or whatever uh mm-hmm. cut to all of a sudden the whole city starts to erupt in like ghost activity yep and they're getting all these calls they're going to all these different places they have this whole contraption set up where they're able to like harness or i guess uh, what is entrap. it entrap this this energy Snare. there's this environmental protection yeah, agency the EPA jerk is mad at them for right. some reason yes he's very upset and so the whole thing comes to a head they're, you know they're successful they're like getting rid of these yeah this energy from the city um and this epa guy is like 
Not on my watch. No way. Gets a Con Edison man it, to go down and shut, shut it down. Shut down the whole Which thing. Which I love this scene so much in our musical version and I didn't realize one of our actors improv because most of our lines are straight from the script and one of our when they go to them they go to the mayor immediately after this because then all these ghosts start shooting out there's there's right right pandemonium and they go to mm-hmm. the mayor and uh and they're like they they're like dickless over here shut down the power and he and the mayor says is that true and he goes it's true this man has no dick and our actor who played that guy was a guy named Ryan Garcia. And he just, with such indignation, would just scream, I have a dick! And it was so <laughs> funny. And I thought it was from the movie. But he, he oh, improv it. Because they're, it, like, just so funny. having a man scream, I have a dick, is too, too funny. <laughs> um, anyways. Uh, yeah, so then all of a sudden all this is going on. Uh, at the same time, Rick Moranis and Sigourney Weaver both become demonically possessed because their building is somehow there's some relationship with this like old they billionaire built it on, like, guy a vortex or something kind of yeah. apex of yeah, like yeah, pentagram yeah. It's, bloop blop it is purposely power of three will set you are, free yeah designed to open some hellhole or yeah something. i ain't that always the way it uh, is and of course it starts with the gorgeous six foot tall woman in the penthouse um starts with her refrigerator also, right. it was weird to me that she had two cans of Coca-Cola in, like, just such a different place. Like, I don't have a super organized refrigerator, but, like, my cans of Her soda are next to each other. <laughs> I mean, even Bill Murray commented on it. Did he? It's like, you eat a lot of junk food. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. So, Bill Murray comes over to, she she calls because there's a problem. Bill Murray comes over to check on her. Oh, no, they have a date. He's convinced her to go on a date yeah. because he's bullied his way into a date. We'll talk about that. Yeah. And he's bullied his way into a date. He comes over and she is horny. She's She she's is down. saying, Are you down clown. the key master? I am the gatekeeper. Mm-hmm. Are you the key master? And she looks amazing, she looks by the way. Incredible. The eighties blush yeah. is I can't. Like, past her temples. It's yeah. stunning. It's like it also is. like a brown and orange eye. It was really beautiful. Ugh. Really yeah. gorgy work. Gorgy work. Um <laughs> I'd like to see somebody on YouTube recreate that look. You know, like I would, oh, I would love that. I yeah, would yeah. Patronize that channel. Um, so they, uh, he, Bill Murray, if one moment in the entire movie does the right thing and does not have sex with her because he realizes yeah. she is demonically possessed. Let's hope right. he's not having sex with her because he knows that it is not what she would want, and not because he's right. like, ooh, a demon. I don't know that I want to mess with that. He does decide to drug her instead. Well, when you're I, that, I think. Well, I think this is extenuating he, okay. circumstances. No, I understand, but like he's like have sex with her or drug her up. Those are the options that come. To well, me. and he kisses her. He kisses her neck before he leaves. By yeah. the way, okay, she's yeah, unconscious. Yuck! Um, but no, that's what you do when it's true love. You kiss a sleeping person when it's true. <laughs> but he love. really wanted to. But he really wanted yeah. To. But he's, she He's agreed to go guy. out with him. Anyways, um, so uh, Rick Moranis, uh, they bring him in to the Ghostbusters thing, and they're trying to do t- studies on him, but then everything goes nuts. He escapes. Because he's the key master. He's the key master. And so he finds he is her. also possessed, They unite, yeah. and all of a sudden, uh, and then we cut to the Ghostbusters realizing they have to go to this like penthouse. They have to go and figure out. They realize Gozo the Gozarian is being released or whatever they figure out the like old yeah this is this is the the hub hub. of whatever what yeah this is it 
So they go in, uh, Ghost of the Gozerian uh, shows up as this, like, stunning androgynous supermodel. That's obviously why yeah. I was cast to play Ghost of the Gozerian. Stunning exactly. androgynous supermodel. Um, <laughs> and she says, they use she, her pronouns for Gozer. I think that seems fine. Uh, there's a whole conversation, though, of, like, I thought it was going to be a man. It's like, oh, like, I don't know. I don't know. There's a whole Who can say? Discussion. Olivia Wilde yeah. plays her in the new Ghostbusters. Yeah. Really? Gozer is in the new Ghostbusters Afterlife. Yeah, Olivia Wilde is in it. I have plays, not seen that. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, it's on. I was thinking the all female reboot. No, sorry, the new new. The new new, which yeah, yeah, is yeah. a sequel and not a reboot. Right. I have I to mean, see that. I mean, it's both. Um, like the yeah. screen film. Mm-hmm. Anyways, uh, so yeah, they um, Gozer says, "Choose the form of the destructor, and this, and he will come." Mm-hmm. and they have to blank their mind, and they try to blank their minds, which, as we know, as we talk about mindfulness and things like this, you cannot have a totally blank mind. It's not possible. That might have been the most unrealistic part of the movie is that three out of four of them were able to have their minds completely, completely blank. blank. It's such a terrorizing time. No, I actually think Dan Aykroyd's choice of the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man is, like, uh, reasonable. It was responsible. It was a really smart yeah. choice. Um, yeah. And so a giant Stay Puft, Stay Puft Marshmallow Man comes. They... Uh, cross the streams which they were initially told not to do because total proton reversal that's not a thing but they're total <laughs> proton reversal um you know what if it is a thing physicists like call in let me know i did not take physics i mean there's a, yeah okay i did but like proton reversal like that's not a thing right i can't i can't speak to okay, that okay great great <laughs> um so uh they blow up the stay puff marshmallow man and if there's something strange in the neighborhood, who are you going to call? Ghostbusters. Exactly. Uh, Dana and, and the thing come out of these, like, they're in these, like, frozen statues and we think they're dead, but, like, they break out of them and they're okay. Yeah. They're somehow perfectly intact and sound. Yeah. Um, Carrie Coon and, uh, this is a spoiler, Carrie Coon and uh, Clueless. What's his name? Doesn't age. Paul, Paul Rudd. Rudd are the gatekeeper and the keymaster in the new one. Yeah. Uh with Olivia Wilde as Ghost yeah. Wizard, which I mean, talk about just like I have to watch yeah, that it's now. Cute. It's really cute. And I mean, Carrie Coon and Paul Rudd. Can't go wrong. Yeah. That's the movie. And just to say, uh Dana, Sigourney Weaver, and Bill Murray end up together at the end. Yes. All the Ghostbusters are heroes of the town. And No, this is a total side note. And if this runs long, I'll cut this out. But in the second one, Sigourney Weaver has a baby. Is that mm-hmm. Bill Murray's kid? So I watched the beginning of the second one because I literally had to know because I remember she had a baby in the I second love one. I you had to think that so, too. <laughs> same exact thing. So no, they broke up and then she got married and then she had a baby with her husband, but she is di- now divorced. Divorced or like not with that guy anymore. Right. Um, and her and Bill Murray are not in speaking terms. That's the terms. problem with independent women. It's the whole thing. I know. That's the problem. They just think they can have babies and not have a husband? Like, Please. Who do they think they are? Please. And then the, the dude yeah. from Allie McBeal is in it with a, with a yes. weird accent. I remember him from Veep. Totally. He's also on Grey's Anatomy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all right. Let's jump into this. Okay. Let's do it. So I'm really excited because the first thing we see is Bill Murray as a parapsychologist mm-hmm. doing... Uh, ESP or extrasensory perception 
research at Columbia. Yep. He's, of course, being a disgusting misogynist uh, in the case of these ESP experiments. Um, uh, for those who, who have not seen the movie or who haven't rewatched, he holds up a card uh, face faced away from uh, a man and a woman who are both attached to electronic, like, shock machines. And whenever the man guesses wrong, he gets a shock. And whatever the woman guesses, he says she gets it right. He's up. So she was not a, what are a they called? Confederate. No, she was not a Confederate. A Confederate is somebody who's in on the study. No, she was not a Confederate because he was really, like, trying to convince her she has ESP. I was, like, really, this is, uh, I started this movie and I was just, like, hopeful that she was and that this wasn't as disgusting no, as Oh, it's really it gross. Seems. Also, I mean, like, yeah. a lot of people have said a lot of things about Bill Murray and how he treats women. Uh, Interesting. Yeah that are not ideal it's not rape stories it's like no no but like icky like, just like eh, mm. i just don't know that like yeah. female comedy writers are good like that kind of thing yeah, yeah, yeah. comedy's man's game or uh, whatever right Anyways, um well th- i feel like that's all he's, he's an old those, dude those snl like first right cast he's an old dude it's men. not a pass i'm not giving him a free pass yeah. i'm also sa- i'm just saying like yeah i bet I bet. Um, Anyways, so uh, I wanted to look into, like, okay, what do we actually know about ESP? Spoiler alert, we did not learn about this in clinical psychology school. Sure didn't. sure didn't. I did not know parapsychology was a field. I don't know that it really is a field. Well, and and actually, I have some some info on that. So um, I found, like, the sort of biggest study, uh, and in fact, the last big study, of um, precognition uh, was done by a um, psychologist who was in like cognitive and like social psychology at Cornell where Mm -hmm. over years and years and years he did independent non-grant funded research because this is really hard to get a grant to study something like this. So he started doing these studies on, um, uh, on something that he called retrocausal priming so retrocausal priming is basically well he did two things one he did a study where uh he wanted to um really get instead of using like plain shapes on cards what he would do is he had two curtains and he would have male and female students and he would tell them one of these has an erotic photo behind it Mm. which one and so he chose something that would cause like a little more of like neurological stimulation than just like a blue circle or whatever, right? Right. Which is sort right. of what we see uh, Bill Murray doing. It's like just playing like some wavy lines, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. So he chose erotic photos, uh, and he cho- he had male and female. He also uh, is gay, and he's like, so I didn't know if they were particularly erotic, but they were naked women, so I don't know. <laughs> um, but he. <laughs> Um, started these in the eighties, and and he published this in two thousand eleven. Uh, but he would show two. Fo- he would have a, he would have two curtains and ask them to guess. And uh, out of a thousand people, they guessed right fifty three percent of the time, hmm. which is statistically significant. But is it meaningful? What was the effect size? Uh, I'm not. I have the I have the stats. I can pull them up for you. Um, but let me let me explain that the other big experiment that he did so he did nine in his paper and he, he he talked about nine the other experiment that he did is he gave people a list of like 48 
words. Mm-hmm. And he would ra- just totally random words. Toilet paper, sock, dog, insurance, keys. Like, would just give a million different things, right? And then um, he would ask them to just repeat them back, right? Just a simple memory task. And then after the fact, he would have a preset category. And he would say, how many of the things that I said to you were farm animals? How many things that I said to you were household objects, right? Mm-hmm. And he dis- this is where retroactive priming comes in. So what he discovered is... He wouldn't ask all categories. He would only ask one right. or two. People who are more likely to remember to accurately recall the words in the first round that would fit the categories after the fact. What? Yeah. And so this is where he found um, so the the significant or the like correlation the the of this was um, across all nine experience experiments was point two two. Mm-hmm. which is statistically significant. Um, that was the mean effect size. It was 0.22. Okay. So, um, again, this is a study with more than 1,000 participants um, that really was trying to focus on retroactive influences on cognition and affect and whether this sort of psychological phenomenon is, in fact, possible or real. Um, so when he... Uh, so when he then did um, things looking at um, the the sort of more sensitive people, he found a mean effect size of 0.43. And what does that mean, high, more people sensitive people? that were people. good at it, he brought them back and it, found that the people that were okay. good at it had a – because he tested everybody, right, in that sort of thousands. So he, sele- he made, like selected from that population. Then when he became population. more selective, it was 0.43, which is super, super high, right? Like this is a very yeah. – incredibly high effect size thoughts i have questions please, 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 please. Uh, i have a lot of methodological yeah, questions and i know some of the answers to these probably well okay the first obvious one is were the experimenters blinded to uh like which what were behind the cards or the curtains um what the categories were i'm not sure whether the experimenters were blinded because that's the biggest thing right is like there are so many unconscious totally. uh, communicators and if they i if this was peer review, like, I mean, again, you never know. But th- that to me is like the first thought that I had was if the experiments had experimenters had any knowledge of what the quote unquote like correct answers right. were, it undermines my confidence <laughs> like in this. Totally. Study. So the actual the, the thing that people are um, more uh, worried about. So this is published in 2011. And it is very much published as these are all um, a priori hypotheses, meaning these are hypotheses that were determined before the data were even collected, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that they were blind because nobody's attacking blindness in here. Um, So I believe that this was a blind study. But what people are angry with is everything needed to be a priori hypotheses. Yeah. However, by the time somebody publishes a paper... As you know, as somebody who's worked in research, you sure do write that this was your initial hypothesis. So the real question that people have, particularly because of how he's sort of using these like strange time points and the ordering and the things, is the re- the bigger question is, was he cherry picking his data? Um, he yeah. maintains, and so he, what he says actually, um, and he's talked, he's addressed this very, he's addressed this head on, and he has said, you know what? Initially, when I started this, I would start a study. It wasn't getting good results, and I would throw it out. And then I would change the study, and I'd start another one. So what he's saying is he didn't 
he didn't cherry pick these data. However, he did a lot of he had a lot of null findings before he got to this. Well, yeah, that's the file drawer problem, right? right? Like this is a huge. I mean, I could go oh, on, of course, and on about oh, this course. the replication crisis. Uh, you know, pre-registering, like registering your oh, studies. Um, like this is a huge issue in all of psychology. Huge. Um, is you have to take people's word for yes. it because yeah. they're writing a paper way after the fact, way and you have to believe that they they're like, yeah, of course I thought of these hypotheses before I collected the data, and there's really no way to confirm that unless you register or like pre-register your study with your methods and your hypotheses. Right online they do that now right and, um, and certain uh, certain things like uh like a dissertation right like i um i chose my analyses after the data had been collected but before i had touched them in a way where it was like what's what measures do i have and then i had to propose my dissertation before i could do any analyses and all of those things like you you try to like do your best to from the outset have these things. yeah i mean my my master's thesis when i tried to publish it i had to rerun it in a pre-registered way, like a, oh, wow. a replication yeah. study. So I ran an entirely second study that was pre-registered because they did not believe like my findings. Oh, wow. um, and it's been replicated because like two more times. So yeah, it was definitely not, 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 not. part of it. Yeah. Not, not. <laughs> Anyways, that's a huge, I mean, yeah, yeah, that's, there are certainly like methodological concerns, I think, but it's also just because like there should be more scrutiny across all these studies. Totally. You know, but, but, but yeah. If we can suspend a little bit of that disbelief, what mm-hmm. the scientists are essentially saying within this is that time is nonlinear and that basically we are what's happening with this precognition is the ability to connect to a future version of yourself that already This is the interpretation. This is the interpretation is like the reason okay. that uh, you know, retroactive priming or wh- whatever mm-hmm. what was it called? Retroactive Retro Retrocausal priming. Retrocausal priming. So that's the the theoretical sort of interpretation here, is that you are, Mm -hmm. in fact, able to connect to yourself as another version of yourself in a future part. um, Mm -hmm. And that the future version of you is what is priming you on, like, the animals, for instance, or is priming you on which one is going to give you the the buzz of the erotic photo. Right. Right. Listen, it is not so that's fun. Perfect. Like, the, and here's the thing. So this research was was published in a really big journal. Um, it was published in uh, what's it called? Big one. Uh, the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. Big mm. big journal in 2011. So the scuttlebutt after this was so it was such an uproar that mm-hmm. zero studies have been funded regarding like precognition extrasensory perception, um, any of this. It's called PSI, which is like mm-hmm. something. Um, but yeah, so the, the because of this study, there was such an uproar and such an explosion that actually like the, the field as a whole is like, nope, we will not look at these so, things. Was that guy's career over? Uh, yeah, basically. I mean, he started in the 80s so and he- was published in 2011. So he probably was like, okay, bye. He could have become a Ghostbuster. He should have become a Ghostbuster. Um, but it was the plans all yeah, there. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it would be. We separate science and mysticism so inherently, and you and I have some some mysticism in our in our lives <laughs> and in our joy. I mean, we're we are Pisces. We are Pisces. 
We have some assism. <laughs> uh, Joanna and I did our own study once at a crystal shop. We, we sure, sure did. did. Where they had these man-made crystals and they had earth-made crystals. And we were like, okay. They were all tumbled the same. And mm-hmm, we did a thing mm-hmm. where we tested each other like five or ten each as to That's which is, true. okay, I'm putting two crystals in your hands. You know, you have to tell me right or left which is the man-made and which is the earth-made. All of yeah. them tumbled crystals. Like there was nothing. Right. And we were 100% right, both of us. I will say, okay, that was super fun. We're huge nerds. Yeah. But my other thing with that, again, is experimenter bias. That is like the biggest thing is like if I knew which one was which, I cannot definitively say that I wasn't somehow priming you of what the right answer was. Uh-huh. Even if it's subconscious. Uh-huh. Even if it's subconscious. Uh-huh. I'm just saying. I'm just saying, you and I can tell the magic of crystals <laughs> in our hands. I'm just saying time is nonlinear, obviously. I'm just saying retrocausal priming <laughs> is real. If retrocausal priming were real, then this version <laughs> of you would go back to that version of you and be like, mess it up just to ruin <laughs> this point. Mess it yeah, up. Yeah, right now. Yeah, so that's... Oh, God, that's fun. That's fun. Yeah, that was Daryl Bem who did this study in okay. um, 2011. Did you come across anyone named Hans Holzer? Uh, no, I did come across... He also published with a guy, uh, um, Honor... Honor... or something. Mm-hmm. Honor... Honor... Um, Honorton. Charles Honorton. Okay. Gotcha. Um... Hans Holzer is kind of my transition into maybe our next topic if we're we're done. So apparently Hans Holzer is uh, another parapsychologist who is very famous, but also had like a a TV show or something, and he has become known as like kind of the greatest ghost hunter. Okay. Um, And he had some kind of, you know, following, and so someone who was particularly obsessed with him was Dan Aykroyd. Oh. Um, And there's an interview with Dan Aykroyd, um, and he's come out in, you know, the past 10, 15 years or so to talk about his Asperger's diagnosis. Um, And so, you know, he talks about that. He was diagnosed in the 80s. Um, when his wife persuaded him to go see a doctor. One of his symptoms, as he self-reports, included his obsessions with ghosts and law enforcement. In fact, he (laughs) carries around a police badge with him at all times. Wow. Um, But his obsession with Hans Holzer, who's this famous ghost hunter, all of those kinds of fascinations directly led into him co-writing Ghostbusters. Yeah. And so... That, uh, I knew that, I didn't know about like how it was directly related to the writing of Ghostbusters, but I knew that he had come out talking about his Asperger's diagnosis. And so I also noticed his character, Ray Stance, in the, in the movie, yeah. um, you see like Bill Murray is like a dog, right? Like he's very, you know, has a rom- romantic life. Um, Egon, like, and Annie Potts yeah. are like freaking adorable. Adorable. Um, we don't know too much about um, what's his face, um, what's his name? Finkman, Ernie Hudson. Oh yeah, um, the guy who comes because yeah. he's like I feel like he comes in kind of halfway through. His character's not super developed. Yeah, I forget. Um, his name. So yeah, I. He serves as like the straight but, man. Yeah, um, I mean, and he all straight men, is. But. <laughs> he uh, is 
partnered with Ray, who is Dan Aykroyd's character, who throughout the film is is very kind of like earnest, uh, like researcher who's just very right. fascinated, you know, with paranormal history. Yeah. Um, he's really like believes in what he studies. He has uh, an extensive knowledge yeah. of the Bible. Yeah. In the that car scene, he knows the the scripture and can like yeah. quote it from memory. Um, although I did read that um, they talk about so they're talking about the end of the world in this scene when they're quoting the Bible, and they talk about Revelation seven twelve. Um, and I just saw that actually the passage he quotes in the film is Revelation six twelve. So it's actually not correct, really? but. The whole thing with his character is that he has this kind of like eidetic memory or like, you know, like he has some traits potentially right. that could be seen as uh, similar traits to uh, people with Asperger's. Right. So I kind of got interested in that. I mean, for sure they never name it, right? But well, he and, and Venkman, yeah, both really are operating on a different frequency. Yeah. Um, but there's something about Ray that is like, I think Bill Murray's character is so much more stereotypical in a lot of ways, um, in terms of like the, the male, the straight white male protagonist. Um, and so it just kind of led me down this rabbit hole (laughs) about Asperger's versus autism, this, this kind of significant conversation that's going on right now that I actually only know peripherally like i don't really know where the literature is where the research is it seems like it's just this whole kind of discussion yeah that is kind of unresolved well, it's sort and of so, ideological too yeah so i did some some research into uh kind of the differences between the types of you know like how people are categorizing things yeah. right so I'm just going to go through the history, and I would love to hear your thoughts yeah. because this is obviously a much more clinical topic than what sure. I um, know. But so the history is that the first way that it was included in the DSM-3 in 1980 was called infantile autism, okay. um, and it was included within pervasive developmental disorders. It still is. Uh, in in the DSM-3R, which was 1987, okay. and... In, uh, let's see, 1989, the first diagnostic criteria for Asperger's was proposed. Um, and in the 1990s, Asperger's syndrome uh, appeared in the DSM-IV within PDD. Right. Um, now it's under so neuro- from 19- neurodevelopmental disorders. So there, from 1994 to 2012, um, autism, autistic disorder and Asperger's syndrome were kind of separate. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, the criteria for autistic disorder included onset prior to age three years, impairments in communication and social interaction, and restricted uh, repetitive and stereotyped patterns of behavior, interests, and activities. Hand flapping and, and shaking and yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. The criteria for Asperger's syndrome was similar to autistic disorder except for a minimum age of onset uh, in addition to minimal delays in cognition, adaptive skills, and language. Um and so, in 2013, they kind of combined these diagnoses into a general autism spectrum disorder yeah, character. Yeah, that's when DSM-5 disorder, came like, out. Yes. And so, there, that's kind of where it is right now, right? right? Yeah, so it's no longer, um, there is no longer a current, you can't currently give somebody a diagnosis of 
Asperger's. Asperger's. It's all um, autism spectrum disorders. And so uh, ASD. And so you can have mild autism spectrum disorder, which is sort of what would Mm -hmm. be what we would think of as this sort of Asperger's, which would be, you know, somebody who is on the autism spectrum who is able to live independently, function independently, um, and still uh, experiences some of these sort of social barriers, social boundaries, um, which is sort of the most um, widely known of like Asperger's. Uh, Yeah, sorry. No, yeah. So I was looking into these like very recent papers because I wanted to kind of know the current state. Um, And it does seem like they're, at least the people who are are publishing or the ones that I found were trying to talk about the um, kind of like new, new discoveries in in the literature of like, there are some differences um, between Asperger's and autism disorder. And there was a paper in 2019 uh, De Gian Battista, I think is the how you pronounce it, but they looked at high functioning autism because uh-huh. I think people might conflate like high functioning autism with Asperger's right. if it's like we're talking about this spectrum. Yep. Um, so they looked at high functioning autism, which they defined as those on the spectrum with normal to above average IQ. Um, but they compared those to people who would have met Asperger's syndrome like criteria and found like differences um, between those two groups, which would mean that there's not kind of this, I, I think like the, the dimensionality of, of autism is maybe not correctly categorized because a spectrum suggests some kind of linearity or kind of like one, one dimension, uh, like, or even trait, like where there's variation, right? And it seems like it's a lot more complicated than that. Um, and there are, you know, some studies looking at genetic biomarkers that find distinct differences um, between those groups. And so I'm really curious, like, obviously the paper that I was reading was advocating for the reintroduction of, like, a distinction. But I'm, like, curious what, what your thoughts are. Yeah, so I, I think you're exactly right. I, I think there's a lot of reasoning. And, and what they're trying to do is it, it almost feels like a two-tailed kind of thing, right? Where there's sort of, mm. there's not one bell curve uh, or, right. or like one sort of sim- distribution. One, yeah. A, 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 yeah. And there's not an even distribution across, across. And I think that it is, there are people who are, um, there are many people who are clustered around the sort of, if we think of the spectrum, right, who are clustered at the beginning of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, although to be honest, I even, I like to think of even people who are um, more like typically developed uh, neurotypical kids that don't have mm-hmm. autism, I like to also include them on this spectrum and to really understand that like it is a continual thing. People are always like, oh, he's on the spectrum. And I'm always like, well, we all are. It's a spectrum. Like that's yeah, the point. Yeah. Um, we're all right. there somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, I, I think that there's so many people that meet the criteria for this, uh, this thing. And so the reason behind a lot of what I understand for the re- the reason they got rid of Asperger's as a diagnosis mm-hmm. was because it was so commonly used to sort of over-diagnose yeah. just an awkward kid. Yes, yes. In a way that being socially awkward is not the same thing as having, as being on the autism spectrum. And I think even people in previous DSMs would agree that Asperger's is on the autism spectrum um, and that it right. is very much related to autism. But I, but... What they're saying is they're losing a lot of the nuance now by saying anybody with Asperger's has autism spectrum disorder. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a there's a worry. They, they changed it because they didn't want to overdiagnose. They basically wanted people to be like, listen, if you want your kid to have this diagnosis and need like all of these things, then you're going to have to seek out an autism diagnosis, which is very intimidating and very scary. And they really do it in a way that is a pedantic, condescending way that's like, yeah. we know better than you. Uh, but I will also say, as somebody who like has tested children, I have definitely had parents come to me and say like, oh, my child is dyslexic. I need you to test them for dyslexia. They, they, I need you to, they need to be diagnosed with dyslexia. I, I've had parents literally tell me that. Wow. Where I'm like, what? What? That's not okay. I mean, I can tell, maybe your child has dyslexia, but. um. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I, I feel like, yeah. So obviously there's these like bad actors who are potentially like, yeah, yeah they're over diagnosing children and parents who may, you know, inadvertently de- like have their children's identity like defined by seeking out totally. some kind of diagnosis. But I think, too, I mean, there's obviously the flip side of that is there's a risk of people who meet criteria that um, would have fit within yeah. an Asperger's diagnosis that no longer would constitute um, like a, an autistic disorder diagnosis that may be missing out on some resources or, or things that they might need. Yeah, they end up getting like a, a neurodevelopmental disorder not otherwise specified or something like that, which mm-hmm. is sort of uh, NOS is what we'll often often say, not otherwise specified, which is like, um, and you can also have like in a lot of things sort of the things that don't quite fit the thing but are are significant still, like still right. cause significant distress when we're diagnosing, we'll often give like uh, an unspecified anxiety diagnosis where it's like you don't quite meet the generalized anxiety criteria, but in order for you to meet criteria to get health insurance to cover this therapy and you are being seen for anxiety, so it's like you may not check all the right boxes, but it's like you check enough boxes that clearly your anxiety matters, but it doesn't meet generalized anxiety disorder, so you get an unspecified diagnosis. Or if it's like I'm so anxious about whether my son is going to get into college, right, and you're so nervous, you would get a specified anxiety disorder. Mm. But that could also fall into Ugh. a lot of things. There's a lot of, yeah, anyways. I mean, that that brings up this whole other thing about, like, what to di- like, what is the role of diagnosis? What is the role of diagnosis? Anything, you know, like, it's such... Well, right? Essentially, it's being used for insurance companies. It's a gateway for resources. Insurance companies, schools, kids get different resources in schools based on these things. Um, The treatment and and oversight and supervision and, and, and like, yeah, the instruction that they get is different. And the cost is, like, someone maybe, like, defining themselves or wrapping their identity around this. There are, um, when I was working in, like, clinical psychiatry research um with children with Tourette syndrome there are parents who like didn't want their children to know yeah so like they won't tell their 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 child uh that they have any kind of diagnosis which is like a different kind of issue well yeah i mean, I mean there's a lot of this within under- the clinical psychology community about like for sure the benefits and and drawbacks of telling someone they have borderline personality disorder mm. narcissistic personality disorder yeah. These these things where there and there are a lot of people that have very strong lines about they will not yeah. tell someone that they have borderline personality disorder. Um, yeah. Which I think is pathologizing, but I also th- like and, and I think it's like not giving the person enough credit. I I do like to think of diagnosis as like 
a, a lot of times diagnosis can be really containing. I mean, I've diagnosed a lot of people with a lot of things. And a lot of times mm-hmm. saying you have an anxiety disorder, saying you have post-traumatic stress disorder and really letting people be like, oh, I'm not just handling this poorly, right? Like, I'm not... Yeah, I, not no, it can feel validating. One. I'm not, yeah. yeah. And so, and I think that's what a lot of these people who are really trying to bring back an Asperger's diagnosis are saying is like, it can feel so containing to be like, it's yeah. not just me. Right. And right. we have, a, you know, a whole number of treatments of, you know, behavioral plans of, of interventions that can help people with these different disorders. And so yeah. saying to somebody, uh, yeah, I had a whole conversation with a client this week about the term mental illness and whether that, like, what that means and what that feels yeah. like and how is somebody with, you know, major depressive disorder mentally ill. And it's like, that's mm-hmm. such like a, it's it, it's all about the fact that words have power, right? And, the, and that it's right. how you right. think about those things. And I don't, as a clinical psychologist, really think about the term mental illness very much. Like, I do not think of my clients as, like, mentally ill. Yeah, absolutely. But I also am am a cognitive behavioral therapist where I really view, like, basically all, uh, almost all, you know, mental diagnoses, mental disorders are the result of maladaptive coping strategies, right? You're trying to do Mm -hmm. something to get it to, to, to be okay, to get it to work, and it's not, the thing you're trying to use to fix it is not sufficient to fix it, and that's making it harder. Yeah. Um, and so that's sort of, I, I don't think that like saying that somebody is like mentally ill because they're just using the wrong coping strategies like is fair. Totally. That's uh, this is like a whole, a whole other, other conversation. Um, so, you know, I, I think this rabbit hole I went down, I mean, I'm, it's it's really interesting and it brings like a, you know, bigger car- conversation about diagnosis in general. Yeah. Um, but. It was interesting, like, knowing the perspective in which this film was, you know, thought about and, like, originated from and written. You know, like, it's... Yeah. It was interesting. Uh, anyways. Anyways. Okay. I also researched something very different <laughs> from this, which uh, was Bill Murray's character. Uh, Bill Murray's character, who you know, as we've already talked about, is kind of icky, is uh, kind of aggressively yeah, pursuing Sigourney Weaver's character. And I, Again, another you know, thing looked... where I just don't remember seeing that as problematic as a kid. Like, I just don't oh, remember being bothered by it. Because there's so many movies. Where, I it's, mean, The Notebook, so... which we've already talked right. about as well. There's so many movies where this kind of unwanted this persistent pursuit is seen as an admirable quality in a man because you he's the protagonist i mean it's the same way that you want to see him get the job right he's the underdog you want him to get the goal you want him to get the pretty girl right yes um which again like perpetuates a million the idea that women are objects to be like one yeah especially Um, the first one where he's so duping this like gorgeous under undergrad where it's like ew you're a professor Yuck. Um, yeah. So I wanted to look into that more. This is a pervasive media, like trope yeah. that we see in TV and movies. It's It's been in many of the films that we've already talked yeah. about on this podcast. I mean, it's probably um, not in all of them in different, yeah. different degrees. And so I just, I think in this one, it was really egregious because I don't think Sigourney Weaver, first of all, she was never really into it. 
And when she became more into it was when she was possessed well, by a demon. She did, and she then, did before she was a demon get her to agree to go out with him. Yes, but it was like he was stalking her. Oh, it was her. gross. Yeah. yeah. Also, and then like, at the end, leave when she like when he brought her over and they didn't find anything and she was trying to get him to leave and he was like I could just hang around yeah. and it was like yeah. yuck. It was a yuck. Right. And then stalked her. Uh, then at the end when they have like their reconciliation and she's no longer possessed and they have this like end of the movie kiss that's supposed to be very gratifying because you know he gets the girl. I have to say that it was like the most. Un, like, I felt like Sigourney Weaver did not want to do that at all. Cringe. Like, it was very, yeah. like, she was not into it. Um, and I don't know. That, like, made me think about this even more and be like, what is up with Let's this? Let's get her on the pod. Um, uh, Let's get Sigourney. But anyways, unwanted pursuit, romantic stalking. Yeah. These are these are things, yeah. right? These are um, things. These are things that happen. So the CDC actually estimates that 7.5 million people are stalked each year. Oof. And women are 2.5 times more likely than men to be followed or receive unwanted attention um, from strangers or intimate partners. I'm surprised it's only two uh, and a half times. Yeah, well... I guess it counts any this kind is, of unwanted attention. Yeah. That is one statistic. Another statistic from a 2009 article was that 70, 74% of the 3.4 million American adults stalked annually were female and 68% of stalkers of a known gender were male. Dang. And we always yeah. act like the crazy ex-girlfriend trope of, like, it's women are the stalkers. Women are obsessed. Mm-hmm. Isn't totally. that funny? Because those are the ones that, like, aren't, uh, like, part of societal norms, right? Like, those are the ones that, like, like women chasing after a man is weird and, like, you know, not, not what you would expect yeah. to see, right? Yeah. And men being persistent in the pursuit of a woman is something that you – we are shown yeah, in course. media all the time, so it doesn't even register. This is one of the studies that I looked up. I mean, up. even look at Steve um, Urkel. Totally. And he's, like, such, you know, like, he's, I mean, a lot of these are, quote, unquote, nice guys, which is a whole, you right, know, other thing. Right, that's the thing. thing. Steve Urkel's such a nice yeah. guy. He's obsessed and they, with Laura Winslow. They are portrayed as sympathetic, having other characteristics, undesirable characteristics, maybe, or... Yeah. You know, they they need to be seen as the underdog in order for them to be sympathetic, but also because you want to feel like they deserve what they yeah. want. You know yeah. what I mean? Because, like, their object of affection is something that they can work hard enough and deserve. Totally. And Which is a whole other thing. So I looked at the study that looked at, um, they showed people uh, this kind of persistent pursuit depicted in media yeah. in kind of... Uh, two conditions so one condition was in a romantic kind of way um like i think they did some, there's something about mary uh was oh, one of them yeah. and then another the other condition was when it's fear-based right when it's like stalking in the way that you might see on like law and yeah, order sbu like i think they showed enough you know it yeah. was like yeah so um they had these two conditions they showed people these movies and then they they looked at how they endorsed something called the stalking myths scale um, and so this is, you know, like a, a questionnaire. And so some of these questions that are on this questionnaire is, uh, a person who is willing to go to the extremes of stalking must really be in love. Uh, a stalker is, is usually someone the victim knows well. Um, an individual who goes to the extremes of stalking must really feel passionately for his or her love interest. Uh, many alleged stalking victims are actually people who played hard to get and changed their mind afterwards. Yeah. 
being stalked has a serious lasting impact on the victim. So these are the kind of items that are on this questionnaire. And so they found that this uh, Lipman study in 2018, exposure to a film that portrayed persistent pursuit as scary led to lower levels of stalking myth endorsement, which is, okay, good, what you might expect. Um, Exposure to a film that portrayed persistent pursuit as romantic didn't actually raise the levels of stalking myth endorsement for all participants, um, although it was raised for um, people who perceived the romantic films as more realistic right. or who, like, they, they looked at this, like, measure of transportation, like, how transported were they by the totally. movie. I There's another interpretation of this as, like, kind of a ceiling effect. So, like, levels of myth endorsement, stalking myth endorsement are already so high that it's really, like, you know, in a romantic movie, that's kind of the norm. So your your levels might right. not be significantly altered by that. Yeah. But when you see a scary ramifications of stalking, you might be like, oh, actually, this is messed right. up and, you know, and not endorse it as much. So I thought that was really interesting. I mean, it really it one of the interpretations is talking about this is a norm. Right. And if you find yourself identifying with these characters or you're finding the the movie more realistic you may be even more caught up in like oh this is what love looks like right um and so you know they 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 may think that like this behavior is more appropriate um there's one aspect that they so they studied uh they looked at a variable of attractiveness pursuer attractiveness (laughs) which like we talked about in the notebook with ryan gosling of like is it just because this is a super hot guy who's being a crazy or like fear is another one marky mark like is it is there some just like if it's a hot guy who's doing it it's fine and if it's like some i don't know some not attractive guy it's not like yeah and they did find they did find that 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 didn't impact the endorsement of um uh stalking myth well so so that was interesting yeah once you're yeah i think that makes sense I, it was not what I, I would have thought that, that there would be an effect there. Well, I think that, but I think once you sort of look at the behavior, like the behavior, once the behaviors feel escalated where the, the part mm-hmm. of where it's like the, the pursued isn't, does not want to be pursued by the pursuer. Mm-hmm. I think once you sort of accept that fact, that regardless of how attractive the pursuer is, that that makes sense. I, but I think it can't, but you cannot stalk uh, a willing person in the sense that, like, you cannot, like, it has to be unwelcomed. And so yeah, I think the but likelihood this... that it would be less welcomed is, I, I think there is probably something in there with the halo effect and, and the ways in which we yeah, pers- perceive uh, attractive people. In that, yeah. um, similar to like sexual harassment in the workplace, we've already we've talked about right. this, right? Is like totally you can ask somebody out, you can ask somebody out twice, and it only becomes harassment if it is in the eye of the recipient perceived as harassment. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I don't say that to muddy the waters. I say that to name that like if you need to be really mindful about how you are engaging with somebody, um, yeah, because you may not necessarily realize that your actions could feel like harassment. And you may not realize that because that is what you see in movies and TV. Yeah. Yes. So that was the research I did. Gorge. Um, I think we have a clinical corner. We have a quick little clinical corner. We're long on time, yeah. so I'll make this real I a short. Uh, yeah. So years ago, I so I, I started thinking when we were watching this movie about um, a lecture I saw several years ago 
um, from a professor at Stanford, uh, whose name, of course, is eluding me right now. Um, uh, Tanya Lerman is her name. Uh, Tanya okay. Lerman is a um, sociology or anthropology professor. And what she studies, though, uh, is the, uh, she did a study, at least, of voice hearing experiences of people with serious psychotic disorders and how that's mm. shaped by local culture. So obviously like the main thing when we think about like demonic possession, which is of course like I am the gatekeeper, I am the key master, right? They are demonically mm-hmm. possessed, right? So a lot of this, right? Or, or hearing the voice of God, hearing the voice of Satan. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, she found that in cultures where mysticism, spirituality, like the idea of being a prophet, of talking directly to God, where that is normalized, uh, they have a much more positive relationship and a much kinder voice within their head. Whereas in individualistic cultures like the United States, where we have a very separate, like, this is not real, this is not possible, this is totally fake, there is a much higher negative like and much more antagonistic like thought experience. So if we look at people wow. with psychotic disorders in these two spaces, largely who are having conversations with either God, a higher power, or just the voice within them, in cultures where we're able to accept that they may actually be a spiritual co- connection. Yeah, they're revered, right? They're revered, or or even just much more understood that wow, that's that must be a really difficult struggle hearing God's voice in your head, right? All the time right, right. In a way that is so much more empathic, um, and the ways in which, like the the when you look at um, co-occurrence of things like um, homelessness and psychotic disorders, it is much higher in the United States than in um in ghana and india which is where she did her other research um and it's just really interesting she actually also proposes um psychotic disorders also as on a spectrum of what she calls of imagination so essentially Mm. where you're at on the imaginative spectrum that's my own term for it i think she has her own um is really uh how we understand psychotic disorders so to those who can so deeply see hear smell feel things that are not there they're mu- they would we would call them psychotic we would say they have uh, psychosis they have schizophrenia they have um you know one of the psychotic disorders and right. so she proposed sort of putting it on a continuum that there are people that if you ask somebody can you smell bread in your mind imagine baking bread can you smell it some people can and some people can't right now i have mm-hmm. i'm really congested so i obviously can't but um <laughs> But yeah, so just an interesting kind of thing, clinical corner, just yeah. like culturally thinking a little bit differently about, um, again, they were not proposing a, a psychotic de- demonic possession in this, but um, maybe right. if we do The Exorcist or something one day, we'll really dig in and, and start to talk about those phenomena. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I think that's a really cool way to kind of reframe yeah. a little bit I really of what, enjoyed what it. we and, think and about. And she can show like the outcomes and the like ways in which people talk about the voices in their heads in these different mm-hmm. cultures is vastly different. Vastly. I wonder what, if those are related to, like what kind of outcomes those are related to. I mean, major uh, outcomes in terms of their ongoing health, their independence, all of the yeah, different, like the yeah. number of medications that they take, all of those things. Um, it's huge. Yeah. Huge. Amazing. Yeah. Ah. Okay. Well, I feel like we, <laughs> we covered a lot. We covered a lot. I thought this would be a short one and we went so long. Uh, so and long. we have a comment from a listener. We do. We do. A friend of the pod. Big fan. Biggest fan. (laughs) Favorite fan. Uh, I had a question for you both. I wanted to know what your absolute 
all-time favorite movie is. Um, please let me know ASAP. Hope you're well. Peace. This is okay. This is really good because I was question. just thinking today that something I wanted to ask you is what movie is your favorite scary movie? <laughs> no, what movie are you absolutely obsessed with? But like, we'll never do on the pod because no one's ever seen it, or like, it's not, <laughs> it's not like a good topic. Oh, interesting. Because uh, I know mine. I know mine. Is that the same? Well, is that the same as your answer to this question? Yes. What's your favorite movie? Yes. Oh, what is it? She's the man. like there's no angle not enough people have seen it it's just not going to be something we do on the pod but it is my favorite 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 i've told you that my cousin once told me that she whenever she watches she's the man amanda Bynes pretending to be a boy reminds her of me she's always (laughs) like that just seems like so you it's like exactly your mannerisms it's exactly your personality um it's the movie that gave us channing tatum uh yes uh, why wouldn't you do it on the pod? Because I, I don't think enough people have seen it. I think that's informed a lot of my picks is like, what are people familiar with? Sure. Um, I also I think feel a lot like of people have seen that movie. Callers, not... let us know. <laughs> yeah, let us know. <laughs> In my head, no one has seen it but me and my sister. Uh, my favorite movie of all time uh, is also not on my list of movies for the podcast yet. It could be. I would do it. Uh, but I think the overall best movie I've ever seen is Drop Dead Gorgeous. Uh, mm. it's, I think the funniest. That's a really good one. It's just, I think, the funniest movie yeah. I've ever seen. Yeah. It is That's a, perfect, a really good it's one. It's a perfect film. It's not, uh, it's not super streamable, but I think they put it up on Hulu recently. Um, so we'll it might be on Hulu. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's a, it's just a perfect it's a perfect movie. That's a good choice. It's just every single line is funny. It's also like written by a woman starring all women. Like it is like such a feminist like comedy. I feel like we could definitely do that one. Yeah, no, I think we could. I mean, I, yeah. the the thing if we did that one is like there's so much. Like there's just yeah, so there's many. So there's a hundred yeah. characters in this movie. So like right. you could really go. Well, you'd have to pick. I feel like a lot of themes we may have already touched on. Especially you're talking like yeah. female friendships and all of that. Um, There's not a lot of female friendships. In no, that I know, movie. but like That's female what I love dynamics. <laughs> women hating women. It's so refreshing to see. There's a lot of literature on that. As we there is, as we talked week. about last week. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's true. Love it. All right. Well, what a pledge. <laughs> as always. As always. I have been Dr. J.D. Barton. And I have been Dr. Joanna Witkin. Rate, review, subscribe. Send us audio messages. Tell your friends. Tell your friends. Follow please. us on Instagram. Yes, at Real Psych. Follow us on Instagram. Soon to be on TikTok. I know. <laughs> we're two millennials who are wading <laughs> through the paths to get our way to TikTok. I am scared. I'm terrified. Yeah. Uh, I literally asked uh, a 20-something friend to teach me how to love that yeah that's the way forward he's gonna help me um anyways that's the oldest thing i've ever said oh no this music's (laughs) getting louder and louder we gotta go okay bye bye
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.